You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. series of crimes in America. Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm podcasting today from my quarantine bunker, and I'm on the phone with Alita. Hi, Alita. Hello. And uh, they are also in their quarantine bunker. And (laughs) we're talking today, of course, about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because what better way to celebrate being isolated than talking about teenagers in the middle of nowhere in Texas? Being slaughtered. Yeah, getting slaughtered. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Alita Parasic, right? I'm always really nervous about getting people's last names right. Um, Yes. Great. I'm doing so good. (laughs) (laughs) So Alita, before we start talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, can you tell me a little bit about who you are, what what you do, what you're about? Yes. Um, that feels like such a loaded question at this point in time. Um, Cause I'm like recently post-grad. Um, I graduated from Parsons um, in May with a degree in fine art, which is a very nebulous sounding degree. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm a sculptor and video artist and performance artist and also sort of part-time writer. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to, um come here and talk about this film in particular is because I wrote about it for one of my final classes at Parsons um in tandem with the film Hereditary and I was speaking on 
the oblique representation of trans bodies in tandem with the representation of disabled bodies, um, like both sort of physical and mental manifestations of that in horror, which is, as you know, a very common trope. Um, and yeah. Amazing. So that's okay. <laughs> you're, no, you're, th that's amazing. And yeah. I'm really excited to have you. And I'm really excited that we met before I left New York and that we got to do this together. Yeah, I like, I'm like, wow, I really manifested this right before you left because I've been a fan for a while and I haven't listened to all your episodes because I refuse to listen to one if I haven't seen the film. And I like, would be the I'm same like, way. <laughs> I'm a nerd like that. <laughs> I, yeah. I've totally like talked to like friends about it like oh my god this lady has a podcast and she's so cool and I would Aww. love to be on it sometime and talk about horror with her yeah. and then it happened and then it like... happened <laughs> and it happened yeah. because you manifested it and because you're fucking cool and smart and you deserve oh, to be you. on a podcast so yay when did you first <laughs> see Texas Chainsaw Massacre relatively recently it was in it was in winter of 2016. I watched it with some friends um, just like on the couch at night. And I I've watched horror movies like pretty prolifically my whole life. Um, like I would just watch them alone in my room on my laptop in middle school to kind of like freak myself out and get over it. Because um, I like I watched a lot of slashers as a little kid just because I had all these um brothers who are much older than me like 15 years older than me and they just kind of let this five-year-old watch Halloween with them and so like slashers and those kinds of films are like deeply embedded in my psyche but I never watched um Texas Chainsaw for some reason because it's one of those things where I was like it's like a classic it's probably gimmicky I don't know it's I really have to watch it but like yes I did because it's not one of my favorite films um like awful backstory to like how it was shot and like production methods and the actual conditions under which um like the actors were working um which is very unfortunate but it's still like the product like remains one of my favorite um horror experiences yeah, yeah. i saw this movie i mean i was very similar uh i was always watching stuff on late night TV. I didn't have a laptop because I'm a bit older than you. So that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't a thing that I had yet. But I was, you know, staying up late watching things. This movie was on a show that you might be interested in um, called Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments before Bravo was all reality TV. Okay. And it was it was on that list on that countdown it was like pretty close to the top of the countdown and it's the moment where uh kirk gets killed with the the sledgehammer oh yeah okay. yeah and this it also around the time when i was i i did, forgot to look up what year the remake came out but i was maybe like 13 or 14 when the remake came out and i saw that um, 2003 yeah exactly yeah, yeah I would have been 13 yeah so I saw that when that came out I saw the original the remake is actually pretty good like as far as remakes go um 
but the original is you know of course the the most terrifying uh yeah i i was genuinely spooked i was like um i think i was just 20 when i watched it and hadn't been spooked by horror movies in a long time but i i was jumping i was jumping in my seat like yeah it's it was, scary it was, yeah it did the job it's gritty and it's yeah it's just one of I mean, it is one of the most influential and famous horror movies of all time. So yeah, it it kind of like spurred like the tropes of the slasher genre of like the sexually active teenagers going off on their own and getting like debased and slaughtered by someone in a mask. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It predates Halloween. Right. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, one of one of the original slasher films and it's still scary. And it, despite there not being that much violence in it at all, yeah, uh, it's really atmospheric. So let's get into it. 1974. It's an American film, obviously, directed by Toby Hooper. And written by Toby Hooper and Kim Hankel. And I thought that was interesting because people always forget a lot about the films I talk about on, the, on this podcast. They forget that a lot of them are there a lot of them are seen as like these misogynist male fantasies, but a lot of them are actually co-written by women. And I think that that's important to remember because we always think of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as like Toby Hooper. Um, but he had help. Yeah, um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about um, misogyny in this film and how mm-hmm. I don't feel like there's a lot of it, but that's later. totally, yeah, <laughs> we'll totally get into it. I would agree with you, I don't think that there is either. Um, and uh, also, I wanted to mention that this movie has one of the best taglines which is who will survive and what will be left of them (laughs) and i used to have that poster in my room in high school (laughs) oh cute yeah and a back patch and everything yeah i was really into this movie so uh this is like a really low budget movie right um right and it used a cast of relatively unknown actors central texas actors where the film was shot and the limited budget Hooper had to film for long hours, like seven days a week so that he could finish as quickly as possible. And he also afterwards struggled to find a distributor because of the violent content. And it was banned in several countries and numerous theaters stopped showing the film in response to complaints about its violence. It became like a midnight movie hit also, Um, And this was also uh, around the same time that films like Pink Flamingos and El Topo are are also um, showing on the midnight movie circuit. That was the way that a lot of theaters can circumvent negative reactions was Mm -hmm. by showing films really late at night to all the freaks that would go see them. So, mm-hmm. which I, as I would have been one of, <laughs> and like you said, it's one of the first films to use that hulking faceless figure killing off victims. Mm-hmm. I, as I'm sure most people know, if they're diehard horror fans, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is incredibly loosely based on the crimes of Ed Gain. Yeah. Right. Who is, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Um, let's see. So Ed Gein, 
I'm a total like slut for serial killers, but um, I know it's geek. problematic, but I am too. So it's <laughs> <laughs> problematic. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah, but so Ed Gein technically wasn't a serial killer because he only killed two women um, in Plainfield, Wisconsin, in between 1954 and 1957. But he exhumed a large amount of bodies. As far as I could tell, they were all women. Um, and when he was busted for killing the second woman, the cops raided his house and they found a lot of different things, including like human skin corsets and like a belt made out of nipples, a box of vulvas, vulvae, whatever yeah. the plural of that would be. Right. Um, just a lot of horrific things. And like this like event entered the public imagination like full force and influenced a lot of different filmmakers and writers, um, which a lot of people probably know, like um, the, oh my God, who is it from, from Psycho? What's his name? Norman Bates. Yeah. Norman Bates is also based on Ed Gein mm -hmm. as well as Buffalo Bill from both the book and the movie um, Silence of the Lambs. Um, but yeah, like, and I'll, I'll get into like me talking about, um, like transness in this film. Oh, and I guess prefacing with that, this is coming from the perspective of a transmasculine person, which is why I'm particularly interested in these things. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of like talk about like, oh, Ed Gein, like he was a crazy transsexual or whatever. Um, but like, like, you don't necessarily have to say that because exhuming bodies has little to do with being a transsexual person. But then elements of like the horror of like, a body being botched up to reconstruct like this different othered differently gendered um creature like tracks in horror movies and also tracks in the way that um leatherface is played yeah no definitely um and all of these movies explore gender transgression uh and i think that you know is no, it's n notable to say that because that was part of Ed Gaines crimes, right? And that's part of why it captivated the nation so much. I mean, I'm really hung up on that human skin corset that you were talking about. I know. I'm like, so what did that look like? Exactly. <laughs> like, can we get the can we get the crime scene photos of that? I really I mean, it's horrible, but I honestly would love to look at them. Oh, and also another another thing I read about the Ed Gein crimes is that um, the second woman that he killed, she was hung upside down without a head in his um, in his shed. And she was like splayed and spread open in the way that you would cut open like a deer okay. to let them drain and stuff. And so that just made me think about the plot of Texas Chainsaw and like and also just like the rural settings. And, right. Um, yeah, the idea of treating humans in the same way as livestock. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, my fucking text messages are going off and I'm like, how can I shut you up? All right. <laughs> so. Yes, and this movie, I mean, it's interesting, too, because it's like the Ed Gain crimes do not take place in Texas, but there's kind of this like. American 
you know, isolation, middle of nowhere kind yeah. of thing that gets grouped. To all these rural areas kind of get grouped together in the cinematic imagination as like being all part of the same universe, even though they're yeah, very, very different true. geographically. Yeah. Yeah. And like clearly like different cultures, different histories. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like the rural isolation of masculinities um, informs um, this, this film. Um, and also the absence and sort of like in a way heavy presence of a mother figure right um, which right. we can get into later oh yeah she's around mommy <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the critics found the movie despicable but in retrospect it was it's regarded as uh very artful horror film a lot of the blood was real because mm -hmm. they had no budget which is also i found really fascinating because there's also this fake documentary premise so the blood being real kind of plays with that idea of like real versus fake that's going on throughout the whole film yeah yeah i guess if we uh get into like the opening scene like it starts with this um very convincing narration i forget the name of the guy who was the narrator but it really like sounded yeah. like someone from like John Larroquette is his name. Yeah, like someone's really telling us, like, like this is based on true crimes, and I was like, I know it's not, but I. But you kind of believe it, moment. yeah. Even now, I kind of, you know, it's very convincing. Uh, Leatherface. So Sally, the main characters really are Sally, who's played by Marilyn Chambers, and Leatherface, who's played by Gunnar Hansen. And Toby Hooper allowed Gunnar Hansen to develop Leatherface as he saw fit, as he wanted to. And Hansen decided that Leatherface was cognitively disabled and uh, nonverbal, really, and uh, went to a school for uh, cognitively disabled people. And he watched how they moved and talked and uh, listened to them to get a feel for the character. And I read that and yeah. I was like, how did you get who how did he get in? access? Like, I mean, what? you know, 1974, like, I, I mean, I don't know how much people were caring about, but you'd never be able to do that now. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. And I did read, but I could not find citations for this. So I'm not going to say that it's fact. But I did read that a lot of cognitively disabled fans of the movie find the portrayal to be successful. So yeah, I saw that too. And that he said that he was trying to be as quote unquote, inoffensive as possible, right or something. And like, but I mean, I will say that, like, I don't think it's ever the butt of the joke that the character is is mentally disabled. Um, it's not something that he is made fun of for. There's lots of like, uh, like domestic abuse that happens in it. But like, um, uh, yeah, it's I don't know. That was that was a contested <laughs> thing to read about. Um, the actor uh, researching the role in that way. But um, but yeah, I don't know. We'll get into the portrayal. Totally. Later, I guess. Yeah. yeah. 
So let's get into the plot where we're talking about that opening that you were you were discussing with John Larroquette, who, by the way, says that his payment for doing the opening narration was a joint. <laughs> 70s, baby. <laughs> and ridiculous. Right. It's very convincing opening, like you were saying. And it you know, we get it says it's August 18th, 1973. We get the preface that this is like a true story, which people really believed when the film came out. I mean, there was no way to verify that. Nobody had a cell phone to, to figure out if that was true or not. Uh-huh. So people were kind of used to taking films at face value at this moment in history uh oh oh, and also interestingly toby hooper was working at the university of texas as a documentary filmmaker so right right so he wanted to combine documentary elements with horror this we get these crime these very grisly crime scene flash photos with that iconic sound right the camera flash right which I've I've never I've been around some like vintage cameras and I've never heard a camera make this noise. Yeah. Like if if you've never seen this movie, just like honestly search the camera noise. I don't know because they they continue to use that noise like throughout the like remakes and the sequels, mm-hmm. even like the newer ones. They mm-hmm. like retain that noise. It's um, like, I, I like I yeah. can't imitate. I'll put it in the episode. It's you hear that and you're like, oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like that's it's it's like it also kind of it's like a vintage camera sound. But it also kind of reminds me of like summer haze, like when it's really, really hot and you get that like buzzing sound of like the heat in the air. Uh, Yeah. And and like um it's like almost insect like in a mm-hmm. way. And there and um the uh the sound design in this film is phenomenal. They didn't use I don't think they use any musical instruments for the score. Yeah. There are like a couple songs in the film, but for like the score itself, they use like mechanical things and things that you would find in a slaughterhouse yes. and just like saws and Which I love. um just yeah, I know. It just sounds like 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 someone in the Foley studio is just throwing around rusty metal like the whole time. Yeah. But and really there's cool. also there's also animal sounds thrown in too. Um, especially like later when we're at the Sawyer family's house. But yeah, like the the sound in this film is also part of what makes it so horrifying, even when nothing violent is going on. Yeah, it's just really creepy. So we get also this, the next shot we get is these decayed bodies posed in front of the graveyard. And there's this news report playing over it about uh, officers discovered a grisly work of art at the cemetery. And it's these bodies posed like obscenely. Uh, Wait, how would you explain their pose? I like couldn't tell what they're supposed to be doing. It looks like one of them is fucking the other one in the ass. <laughs> like, <laughs> is that what you thought? I was really like, <laughs> I mean, that would just feel like so out of character for some reason. If that's really how they posed it, because that's just so funny. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> but, think that that's what it is. I think it's more of a. I mean, nod. one can only hope. One can um, hope, <laughs> yeah. But I think it's more of an homage to what to Ed Gaines' crimes, like yeah, the way that he would pose bodies. Like, sort of, 
pseudo reanimating the corpses in any type of way. Right. Yeah. So so we actually see that. And then the news report kind of continues over these gritty, abstracted, blood red images and we we now cut to a shot of an armadillo a dead armadillo uh as the news continues and we're moved from abstraction into this van where the news reports are playing from the radio and this is when we meet sally the cast which is very like the scooby-doo van of teenagers we meet sally her brother franklin who's a wheelchair user Jerry, Kirk, and Pam. And Franklin is kind of immediately positioned as uh, like a helpless, right? Because he needs help getting out of the van to urinate. Uh, Fun fact, Gunnar Hansen said that during the filming, uh, he did not get along with Paul A. Parton, who plays Franklin, and that a few years later he met him again and he realized that he was a method actor and he'd simply <laughs> chosen to stay in character even when not filming. <clears throat> and the two remained good friends. <laughs> so, method acting. I'm just like... Uh, I know. I, I think it's the silliest thing. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm just like, it's called acting. You don't have to retain the character outside of the scene. Um, but anyway, but I really, I ride hard for Franklin's character. Um, it's, yeah, so like, he's really the first um, character we see, um, like, complete like some sort of like important action which is like he's like helped out of the van and then he goes to like pee in a can on the side of the road Mm -hmm. and then a truck drives by like an 18 wheeler drives by and he falls down the hill and then I think like immediately we're thrown into this like idea that like um there are I don't know. There's we we immediately know like his limitations and that if there's anything that goes wrong um along their road trip like he's definitely going to be in danger. Right. Um and we also immediately learn that everyone in the van including his sister are really sick of him and they're really like they just have this attitude of like being very annoyed that he's there and that they have to take care of them, which does not set me up for having any sympathy for them later in the film. Oh, totally. Um, I don't like any of them. I think I like Franklin the best out of all of them. Uh, And yeah, he's is set up. He's set up as a quote unquote liability, but also not because I find the film to actually be quite sympathetic to him. And yes. I think that it's more of. Yeah, it's more to like build tension. Um, but yeah, I want to I definitely. Well, yeah, let's get into it because I want to talk about Franklin more when we get more of his personality. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Back in the van, Pam is talking some 70s Zodiac shit to Jerry, who is driving the van. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> and I really like that part. Uh, the van pulls up to this gathering of old men. Um, so one of the old men is on the ground. Is oh, he yeah. missing his legs? I couldn't Is tell. he what? Is he missing his legs? In the, 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 the No, I don't think so. 
Okay, because I was feeling like there was a lot of immediately things about physical disabilities coming up. I think he was just very, very drunk. Okay. And sort of lolling around. Yeah, and he... he, They pull over because they're looking for um, the... the grave of the grandfather. Yeah, of, the hardest Yeah, grandfather, yeah. Sally and Franklin, um, who are brother and sister. Yeah. And then um yeah, this drunk man who's lolling about on the ground sort of says to Franklin, what does he say to him? He says, Things happen here they don't tell about. And he's sort of like is this weird like oracle in that yeah we get the horror movie harbinger of yeah yeah, the creepy old man who is saying something cryptic and he says it to franklin who and franklin is the only one who really heeds that uh yes yeah up until you know franklin's demise you know spoiler (laughs) (laughs) and yeah so they're investigating the grave also partly because of the reports of vandalism and grave robbing and they want to make sure that their granddad's grave hasn't been vandalized kind of bizarre conceit but uh you know then we wouldn't have a movie yeah (laughs) back driving in the van sally assures franklin that their grandfather's grave did not appear dug up The group smells a horrible stench and Franklin tells them that it must be the slaughterhouse that they're passing where their grandfather used to work. And there's this that disturbing music, shots of cows in the slaughterhouse. And Franklin describes in graphic detail, much to the chagrin of the other teens, other college kids, uh, how they'd kill a cow. Back in the old days, which is you would hit the cow in a sled with a in the head with a sledgehammer, uh, that will become important. And that now the way that they kill cows is with this air gun. So we're the the slaughterhouse, right? Is like a big theme in this in this film. And Toby Hooper himself said that the film is about meat. <laughs> yeah, I like I. I feel like, okay, I either read this or I heard it in another podcast that Toby Hooper wanted this film to be a little bit funny and satirical and he wanted it to be like, oh, I'm talking about like the way we kill animals and use their bodies and haha, like here's it, here we see it happening to humans or whatever, which I don't think is a very interesting premise. <laughs> um, no, I find the premise and- though of the broken american dream it more interesting of like these people who are being put out of work by modernity because now there's this gun people don't have to have the job of being the sledgehammer killer anymore yeah and it's you know kind of putting people out of work it's creating a depression economic depression and it's depressing the area yeah, uh, and you very much feel that in this area of the country, this central Texas depression that they're driving through. Yes. So they they pick up a hitchhiker. They see this hitchhiker on the side of the road. They decide to pick him up. And the hitchhiker has a uh, what I've heard described, but I'm sure that there are other terms for it as a port wine stain on his face which is like a skin condition right so Mm -hmm. he's got a um 
it's like a red it's like a a big birthmark on his face yeah all across his face so i wanted to because this is your area of expertise take a second to discuss (laughs) the various physical disabilities and deformities that are at play here already in the film and what you make of the hitchhiker having this facial mark yeah um, okay, wait. I'm gonna say I'm like an expert. I am, I am trying to be like a baby scholar, um, just like in my own way. But I definitely, um, this is like a lot of the stuff I think about um, when I'm watching these films. Um, and so, in so the first person we're introduced from the Sawyer family. Um, he comes in, like, even if he just has a birthmark, there's still, like, something about the way that it's overtaking his face that we can read is supposed to be unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that he's talking is very, like, manic, and he kind of stutters, and um, he starts talking about the slaughterhouse, and he pulls out these photos of... Um, cows that he's killed and so all of these are you know not good signs and um just sort of like point towards some sort of like mental disability right and what's interesting i what's interesting about this scene is that um franklin who i think also is coded a little bit to be on the spectrum Mm -hmm. um just because of the way that he um he tries to like he tries to talk and converse a lot with the rest of the teenagers and they kind of shut him down a lot and they're yeah, not really he doesn't interested. take social cues very well. Yeah. Um yeah. And but he really tries to talk to the hitchhiker and have like a very pleasant conversation and he's genuinely like interested in the hitchhiker and what he has to say and they sort of have this little banter and so it's it's a weird kind of bonding moment between them um that um honestly like in this moment like like i at this point in the film feel like franklin sort of is the protagonist um in a way because we get more of his personality and more conversation from him than anyone else and i feel like we're looking at things sort of from his perspective um yeah it's weird to have sally as the final girl of this film because we really don't know anything about her for the entire film we're really in with franklin and we're alone with him a lot too when the when the other kids leave the the frame we're alone with franklin so yeah it's a it's a, a weird kind of pivot that the film makes when she's alone uh so that's that's a good point yeah and he's got the most character development like we know the most about who franklin is as opposed like we know pam likes astrology and it's supposed to be like a dumb (laughs) but that's really we don't really know anything about the other about the other characters um yeah and, and there's also a comment later by sally when they're like walking down a ravine that they used to go to when they were children by their um, the house their dad owns. And she was like, oh, we used to carry Franklin down here. So we know that um, he's had this disability since he was a child. And like, there's a backstory there. Um, 
and like a backstory of like this kind of resentment that it feels like his sister has for him. Um, but I, what's, yeah, what's interesting about like the aftermath of this scene. Okay, wait, do you want to describe like what happens in the rest of this? Yeah. So what, ha- what happens is that the hitchhiker, he's got this like weird homemade animal fur purse around his neck and he's, you know, taken the Honestly, kind of cute. Kind of cute. Yeah. I mean, he looks like, he looks like a queer crust punk. Like he looks oh, like an oogle. Yeah, he looks like an oogle, and he's, like, taking objects out of this purse. He's got a Polaroid camera. He's got photos of dead cows. Um, <laughs> the Honestly, other- I can think of some, like, trans mass people that are exactly like this person. Right. I was like, eh, this doesn't feel that weird to me. He... <laughs> I also on this rewatch, it's so funny when you rewatch films so many times and you you get you just have different thoughts about it every time. I was like annoyed with the characters because I was like, be nicer to him. Like this this guy, like he's showing them the dead cows. I don't know. I this is how I know I would die because I would be like, cool. Yeah. (laughs) So the hitchhiker, he also talks about um how to make head cheese which was one of the original names of the film was head cheese Mm -hmm. and he franklin has this knife that he's been playing with the hitchhiker grabs the knife and he cuts his palm with it and everyone in the van like kind of freaks out and he just laughs maniacally the hitcher pulls this razor, the straight razor, out of his shoe, and he's like, oh, I have a knife, too. And he also takes a ca- a picture of Franklin with the camera, and then uh, a la, you know, Times Square characters, yeah, he's, like, exactly. he's like, okay, now you have to pay me for it. And he's like, it's $2. Two dollars. Nice two- picture. Yeah. Franklin's like, no. this didn't turn out too well. Right. <laughs> like... Like, fuck that. I'm not paying $2 for this. Right. And he also tries to get the group to take him to his house, um, like, very insistently. And they say no. And when they refuse to pay for the photo, he burns it. And he slashes. He pulls gunpowder. Right. Out pulls gunpowder out of his purse, sets it on fire on the photo. And he slashes Franklin's left arm with a straight razor. And the group force him out of the van and drive on with the hitcher like hitting the side of the van and making faces at Franklin. So that was their their first strange encounter. Well, I guess the first strange encounter was the drunk man in, in the in the cemetery yeah. and now this guy. So they stop at this gas station to refill the van, but the proprietor tells them that the pumps are empty. Fun fact, you can visit this gas station and you can stay there now as a, a, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre tourist a tourist attraction, which I would like to do. I, okay, I would totally go there as a fellow lesbian vampire yeah. and like get into some naughty shit. Um, yes. But it would have to be like, I would have to have so many people. I would need to be sleeping on a pile of bodies to feel safe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I Like this like I said, this is how I know I would die. Because I'm like, yeah, let's go. Uh, <laughs> I've like actually looked into it. Oh so yeah, I mean, it's cool. Uh, the proprietor 
uh, he he asks Franklin if he he knows where the old place is or um. So it's it gets it's a little confusing because the Franklin and Sally's last name is Hardesty, but the the old house that they're looking for is the Franklin place. Oh and yeah, I, I noticed that, and I was like, "What? Uh, who's named yeah, what now?" I but know. I think whatever. Franklin is named after the the grandfather's last name. Ah. Um, so. He, the proprietor discourages them from investigating and he tries to get them to eat this barbecue that he has. Uh, and Kirk, I don't know if I trust gas station barbecue. Right. I mean, depending on where I am. I, I mean, know. maybe in Texas. <laughs> Kirk kind of kicks himself for not getting gas earlier, which obviously we know is going to be a problem in the future. So I wanted to also talk about each character for a second like what their role is so mm-hmm. franklin we we've talked about he's kind of like the other right the outcast of the group he's kind of just along for the ride he's not really these are really sally's friends yeah sally is like kind of a dogs are barking in the background sally is like <laughs> kind of a i see her as kind of a blank slate yeah like she doesn't really have a personality she's just she's the viewer right um kirk is like a good old boy like a kind of a jockish type take charge kind of guy and pam and Mm -hmm. him are a couple and pam is like the dumb slut that dies early on and jerry I, I mean, I just, that's just like a slasher trope. I know. That's not I me know. saying that. I, I support, <laughs> I support oh, no. and love dumb sluts. Um, I am a dumb slut. I am a so. dumb slut. So, you know, <laughs> I say that with love. Uh, yeah. And Jerry is kind of like the nerdy guy who I guess Sally is kind of dating. Yeah. So that's, yeah, everybody's got their, their place. Um. The gang pulls up to the old abandoned Franklin house and Franklin proper is like preoccupied with the blood smear that the hitcher left on the van, which he says looks like he was trying to write something, but nobody listens to him. So he's already like looking for these warning signs. And I think what I was thinking about is the fact that like, if you are a physically disabled person or mentally disabled person, um, you have to think harder about your survival and your just daily navigation of life and your safety, like much more often and more thoroughly than people who are able-bodied and neurotypical. Um, And so, yeah, Franklin's like, Hey, you don't think he's gonna try to follow us, right? Like, there's no That's way I would he be thinking. Followed us. Yeah, yeah. He and he was like, "Why do you think he did that?" And he's asking these probing questions. Um, and the other teens just don't give a fuck. Yeah, no, they're, they're like, they're "Franklin, like, oh, he's up. gonna come and get you, Franklin." We yeah. gave him your name and address and zip code, and he's just like, "You don't think I said something to bother him, did you?" Like he's. <laughs> He's just really trying to process it. And and yeah, that's like another reason why I'm like, I, I love you, Franklin. I ride for like, Franklin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Seriously. he's very, like, that's a very poignant, very poignant aspect of this is he's 
the only one who's he's vulnerable so he's concerned for his safety and the safety of the group he can't run away if somebody comes after him so he has to think about these things and the rest of them are just kind of stupid and they should have listened to him (laughs) yeah because when so they arrive at the house um and then it's this it's very dilapidated um like two stories i think it was a like place where franklin and sally went as children um I honestly have no interest in entering a house that looks like this. The stairs would fall out from under you. I don't care how creepy so it is. stupid. Yeah. Like they, they, they walk in, like they immediately like run upstairs, um, start like kind of giggling and laughing at like nothing. They're like, look at the wallpaper. And I'm like, did they, I didn't see them smoke weed, but they must be stoned right now. Yeah, for and sure. Yeah, and so they're just, like, having a grand old time doing whatever the fuck. And Franklin, like, you know, with difficulty scoots himself into the foyer, I guess, of the house and is, like, sort of, like, making, like, raspberry noises and, like, mimicking their laughter and talking to himself, like, oh, come along, Franklin, it'll be fun, Franklin. (laughs) Like, like, fuck like fuck these people for dragging me to this house. and then ignoring like, him and leaving yeah. him there he can't he, they know he's gonna have trouble following them yeah oh and what he says that really made me laugh is he's like i think if i have any more fun today i just can't take it yeah <laughs> so funny yeah so this is when we're like alone with him right and we you know we're we're sympathetic to him I or at least I am watching this, you know, we like I said, we haven't been alone with the other characters. So it's significant. Um, Go ahead. Uh, Oh, my God. I listened to this other podcast. I can't remember the name. I listened to a million different like different people who do horror podcasts about um, this specific movie because I was just looking for different perspectives. And these two podcast bros shit on franklin the whole time they were like fuck this he's the most annoying character he's the worst like his voice is so annoying and i'm like what a normie boring opinion like yeah what (laughs) your opinion is wrong (laughs) um (laughs) and um but yeah and at this point um franklin is surveying the space actually kind of looking at the details of this place that they just entered like even at the front door he sees some bones hanging from yeah, he's i like, don't know what, what kind of bones yeah yeah and and there's like a pile of bones that look very purposefully arranged on the front porch and yes. he's like starts yelling for Sally he's like Sally yeah. <laughs> like come look at this shit yep <laughs> like ser- like you know like I mean, I know that that would be the first thing you or I would notice if we walked Oh, oh my God. Are you kidding me? I would be like, I'm not going in here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, he sees this pile of bones and feathers. Uh, Pam and Kirk are like just idiots and leave to go explore a possible swimming hole that might exist. (laughs) Uh, There was no water. Right. Yes. And... Yeah, Frank, it's interesting, too, because I'm thinking about the final girl trope, because this was really the first one of the first films to utilize the final girl trope. And Mm -hmm. going forward in film history, the final girl 
is like really the one who is who is the one noticing things from the beginning and all of her friends are ignoring yeah, her but in this it's true. franklin and yeah he's he's the one who is pointing things out yeah which i can't think of another slasher example off the top of my head where there is a male character who is doing that um because in in a lot of horror films and as uh discussed in the book men women and chainsaws which i know that you've uh, also read parts of um she talks about how uh hyper vigilance is coded as female in a lot of these films but in this film Mm -hmm. franklin is the one who's hyper vigilant and i'm just now kind of thinking that that's very interesting in regards to the gender transgressions the other gender transgressions in this film yeah um, I guess like we could say that um, hypervigilance um, could be coded or attributed to um, bodies that are especially marginalized or right. rather people who are especially marginalized. Um, yeah. And in this particular situation, that would be Franklin. Out yeah. Of everyone. No, for sure. And also something that is important to talk about it, what you mentioned in your paper uh, is disability, the inherent queerness of disability and how um, b- people's bodies that are that go against the cis hetero white patriarchal mainstream are coded as being queered. And in this way, it's a very kind of queer thing for Franklin to be the one to be hyper vigilant and the one who's who's tapping into those those tiny uh harbingers of doom yeah yeah um and for listeners if anyone wants to read up on um like ideas about queerness and disability like sort of developing um as identities and concepts you should check out crypt theory by robert mcgruer um which um explores that in depth and also like sort of goes over like the ways um, like queer and trans people have been like um, medicalized and written about in that way um, and the way things have sort of been conflated and confused when it comes to physical mental disabilities and queerness and transness. And it doesn't um, conflate the two or say that queerness and transness is a disability, but it talks about how they're very enmeshed in the ways that like uh, especially in like Western medicine. Totally. Um, or seeing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Pam and Kirk, this is kind of an interesting moment where they're running down the hill and they're looking for the swimming hole and they're mocking Franklin and they actually say something fat phobic about Franklin. Yeah. So, you know, like they say, oh, Franklin, I guess they carried him down here when he was little. And Kirk says Franklin was never little because uh, yeah. Franklin is fat. Uh, as well as disabled. So yeah. that would that was another interesting thing to me as somebody who studies fatness in film and how <laughs> fatness and disability and gender transgression are all being linked here. Yeah. Uh, in the character of Franklin. They stumble upon this house because they're looking for they're looking for gas. They see this house and Kirk is like, oh I'll just buy some gas from them. And they 
it's so stupid. And he <laughs> enters through the unlocked door while Pam waits outside. It's this very creepy house. There's lots of abandoned cars in the yard. Probably not a good sign, guys. <laughs> and like objects hanging from trees. And in the house, Kirk sees it's like right in front of him. There's this open doorway that, that there's this beautiful red wall covered in animal mm-hmm. skulls. I fucking love this wall. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely your aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, want that in my home. <laughs> and he hears these squealing pig noises and walks towards them. And all of a sudden, Leatherface appears in the doorway and bashes Kirk in the head with a sledgehammer, just the way that they used to kill the cows. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Kirk dies. He, But not not before convulsing very violently. It's um, Yeah, it's really gruesome. Yeah. Um, love this kill. Love this kill so much because it's so sudden and so fast. And, like, I love the shot because you see him walk in into the doorway with the red wall and then there's no like sudden close-up on him it's just like like one take like him walking into the doorway leatherface like hitting him with the sledgehammer suddenly and he goes down and then you see the shot of him shaking and like it's a very very quick kill and then leatherface like kind of like peers out of the doorway real fast pulls him behind the door and slams it shut and um and i you know before that happens i'm just like holy shit why are you going poking around in someone's house I like know. he knocked on the door he's knocking on the door he was yelling like hello anybody home and then just enters someone's house and like i don't know maybe this is only something we know like or think about now or maybe it's something that people like us who are queer and like are at risk when we're in like you know like isolated areas where we don't know anyone you don't just go knocking on someone's door and entering their house they're not gonna want you there right (laughs) like i'm honestly like like sure smash him in the head like <laughs> i know i mean you i mean if you know if you listen to this podcast i'm always rooting for the villains so yeah. i'm like yeah <laughs> when this happens like i'm like get him yeah honestly. get him he sucks anyway and- oh and then something sorry something happens um before that before he actually enters the house um and they're waiting on like the porch a human molar Falls like, oh, yeah. from from the outcropping over the deck somehow. Like it was probably hanging somewhere. It falls, um, and then Kirk picks it up and <laughs> he goes up to what's her name? Pam. Pam. Can't even remember people's names. They're just like nobody to me. Just They're like just team one, team two. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he goes up to Pam and he's like, I got something for you, and drops the tooth into her hand, and she's like, ah, and lets it fall to the ground. And I'm like, wait a second. You didn't have a conversation about how a human molar just dropped from the ceiling? So like, stupid. It's, it's it's very, I mean, it's odd. It just makes me, like, wonder just in terms of, like, like screenwriting, like, like, what kind of gaggle of teens would not react to these kinds of things? Like, are there people that are so stony baloney in that particular way that they just don't care about anything that's happening that's out of 
the norm because I know that my stoned ass would be like, we gotta go. (laughs) There's teeth dropping. My theory about that is because this is very common in slasher films is that the slasher film is a participatory experience and I think that we as the audience are supposed to be screaming and making noise like, you idiots, don't go in there, don't go in there. Because that's like part of the part of the experience of the slasher is like totally you know don't don't go investigate that noise and i always feel like you know in a way people are like oh i would never do that and it gets to sort of we get to feel superior in our uh grasp on (laughs) mortality like we have any control over that but in reality like how many times have you gone to check a weird noise in your apartment like we do do that we as people you know so it's we we get to sort of fool ourselves that we wouldn't do these things but then i will often catch myself actually doing the thing that I've mocked people in movies for. So that's my theory about it. I feel like it's very purposeful. Yeah, totally. Makes a lot of sense. The other thing I find interesting is Gunnar Hansen was really Leatherface is so tall and Gunnar Hansen is a tall man. He's 6'4", but they also had him wear three-inch heels to make him look even taller, which is really interesting consider the the drag that leatherface does in this film can you describe leatherface what does he look like oh yeah um so leatherface um the actor six foot four so plus three would be six foot seven so a very (laughs) large hulking um man question mark um is how he's supposed to be read he we first see him wearing like a huge, he was wearing like a butcher's apron, probably, I think, when we first see him. His mask, um, we can assume, is probably made from human skin. Um, it's stitched together very loosely. It's um, it's very artisanal. It's very handcrafted. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, and he's got this, he's got this kind of like ratty, unkempt hair. Um, and after um after he kills um pam pam like kind of shortly goes in looking for kirk Mm -hmm. um and she she enters like the front foyer i keep saying foyer i don't know what a foyer is she enters like a front it is that's what it is yeah 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 she enters like a front room falls on the ground realizes that the room is covered in bones and feathers and it's also covered in um like art yes with the bones like yes. there's this wonderful like chaise i love I was, it i want the, it yeah the yeah, human yeah. bones chaise yeah the, yeah with a skull in the middle um we see leatherface like after he makes the initial kills um during which he's usually screaming in like fear it sounds mm. like leatherface is very much um like he's frantic as he's doing these things. He doesn't look like he's killing out of enjoyment at all. He's doing it because these people are invading his home. And like, it's clear that there's some shady things going on here. And he's like, well, I can't have these people coming in here and leaving. Um, And so he's very much, it it feels like he's protecting himself. Um, And he goes and he, he enters that front room after killing Pam and he's kind of looking out the window and we get, 
the first and only like good look at his face, I think, in the whole film, because a lot of the film's very dark at the end. Um, but there's like this beautiful like golden light streaming in the front room into this horrible, horrible house. And he's looking out the window, kind of paranoid, and we see his face and um under the mask, you can see Gunnar Hansen's eyes and you can see his mouth. And he had like specially made like bad teeth prosthetics made by his dentist. Apparently it's what I read somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so you see his face and you see him kind of doing this like nervous tick of like licking his lips repeatedly. Um, and you can so like you can see the way that he's trying to um, adopt sort of like facial tics that mm-hmm. are coded as disabled um and i and in this moment like it when you actually get to see his face like i i think is like for me it's a very sympathetic moment because mm-hmm. we saw what he just went through we saw his like frantic reaction his like squealing um kind of like sometimes there's actual pig noises and i think that the squealing pig noises are meant to be read as coming from him Mm -hmm. in the beginning um so like there's also a conflation with like animality um and we know that like um people who are mentally disabled are often like stereotypically conflated with animals he's looking out the window um And I just get the feeling that, like, he is afraid. He is really afraid that more people are going to come into the house. And that's what happens. Um, And so what happens next? So that's that's a good intro for him, right? Yeah, no, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I just, I feel like Leatherface is such an iconic villain. That's, I wanted to just take a step back and actually talk about you know who he is and what he looks yeah. like and you know we kind of take that for granted sometimes yeah culture, like the like- actual reality of who he is like like doesn't really reflect sort of like i don't know like him as an icon yes like and like if someone made like a cute illustration of like all the slasher villains like like he is so different from like Michael Myers. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. And I I think going back to Gunnar Hansen developing the character, he I read in um in a book that I can't remember because it wasn't an interesting book, but I got a direct <laughs> quote from <laughs> Gunnar Hansen in it saying that he thought Leatherface had no personality and he had to put on these different masks to like have a personality. Um, or like and and that like the character himself was like playing these different roles but in reality he was like an empty human but that's not actually how Gunnar Hansen played this character no he, he plays he, him as like a kind of docile person yeah, in a lot of ways yeah if I were to name a slasher who is an empty shell it would be Michael Myers yeah like just I have like a, a killer yeah just yeah but and I have so many thoughts on Halloween um that we should chat about later oh yeah <laughs> totally time. yeah um, I mean Leatherface has a, a pathos to him that Michael mm-hmm. Myers does not have mm-hmm. uh even though Leatherface was kind of the blueprint for Michael Myers so 
what happens so just to backtrack a little bit um pam you know falls in that bone room that great room and leatherface she attempts to flee we get this great shot of leatherface kind of catching her as she runs out of the house and it's like a very mm-hmm. iconic shot and he impales her in in his slaughter room he impales her on a meat hook and the in- interesting thing about this is pam is wearing this backless shirt um oh yeah the halter yeah she's wearing a backless halter top and they did that because they couldn't actually show the meat hook going into her flesh so mm-hmm. they kind of just freak you out by implying it with that backless shirt and then yeah. Leatherface makes her watch as he butchers Kirk with a chainsaw. So back at the van, uh, Franklin can't find his knife. Uh, Jerry heads out to look for Pam and Kirk at sunset, which is very stupid. And <laughs> Franklin tries to talk to Sally, uh, but she's annoyed by him. And you can tell in this moment that she feels like he's a burden. And Jerry sees the house and he goes inside and he finds Pam still alive inside a freezer, (laughs) which is so fucked up. It's like a very terrifying moment. But before he can react, Leatherface kills him. Uh, And that's when we get that close up you were talking about of Leatherface. So now it's nighttime. Uh, Sally and Franklin are at the van. They're worried about their friends. Sally wants to go look for them, but um, Franklin wants to go get help. Uh, Franklin realizes that they can't drive away because they don't have the keys. So Jerry probably has the keys. And him and Sally fight, and they actually get into a physical struggle. Yeah. Because Sally wants to leave to look for them without Franklin. And Franklin is like, you can't leave me here. Uh, and she starts to leave anyway with Franklin kind of trailing after her and shouting that he can't catch up. Sally and Franklin see the house in the distance where all their friends are now dead. And Sally struggles to push Franklin down the hill. Uh, Leatherface emerges from the trees (laughs) and massacres Franklin with a chainsaw. R.I.P. Yeah. And we don't see it happen at all. Yeah. Um, I, I partially because they were so low budget and they didn't have like almost any lights during these like outside night shots. Like you can really barely see anything, which is spooky. Um, but yeah, um, you just see Leatherface um, and then you see Franklin from behind and you see Leatherface like thrashing the chainsaw around on him. But I'm like happy that we don't see the mangling of the disabled body in this movie. Yeah, no. Like, I don't need like, to see that. Like some of like some of like the horror of the violence is like not quite seeing all of it. Um and I think this was like I don't think Toby Hooper was thinking about this at all, but like it is like a prudent moment that like his murder wasn't like a further like dismembering mm-hmm. of an already disabled body because that definitely is a thing that happens in other horror movies. Um, and it's just like unnecessary and per- violent in a way that I don't like. Yeah, um, I I like that this film, a lot of the violence is just implied. Like, you know, that, that yeah. definitely makes it makes it scarier. I don't always need to see everybody being horribly killed. 
So Sally, now this becomes like a typical final girl chase where Sally runs screaming into the night as Leatherface chases her. And she runs towards the house and she finds the, she goes upstairs and she finds the desiccated remains of an elderly couple. Uh, She escapes from Leatherface by jumping through a second floor window and (laughs) which is amazing, uh, scrappy of her. And she flees to the gas station with Leatherface chasing her with a chainsaw all the way. So the proprietor calms her with offers of help. Uh, and he's acting, uh, Sally's acting is really great. Her terrified acting. She stares oh, at yeah. this like barbecue meat in the red fire. She's like hypnotized by these grisly meats. Uh, and I'm like staring at the meats and I'm like, is, is there a human organ in there? I'm that's what I mean. Right. That's now? what I was thinking. She was thinking. Yeah. So the gas. I'm like, is she connecting the dots? Right. I think she is. Yeah. And the gas station guy, like, comes back in with this rope and this bag and he and he ties her up. She struggles, she fights, but he ties her up and he gags her and he forces her into his truck. So this is one of the early, like we said, one of the earliest examples of a final girl um, in the book Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which is like the seminal text on the final girl. She talks about this film a lot. Uh, and, you know, her kind of her, I don't know how much Carol Clover's kind of theory about the final girl holds up, uh, (laughs) you know, like, I I think she reaches a bit in parts, like when she's saying that Sally's, the final girls are, uh, kind of coded as masculine, uh, and that's why they're allowed to survive. I don't see that here. Like, I, I, I was looking either. for it, but I don't see it. Yeah. Um, but that is one of the popular arguments. Um, or, like, one of the, the other things she says when she talks about um, uh, what I, I don't know why I'm blanking on so many names, but whoever Jamie Lee Curtis's character is. is Lori Strode. Is, yeah. Lori. And she, she talks about um, Lori in that book and how she's like the nerdy awkward girl and sort of unsexed and that's like a reason that she was able to survive also like virgins that was the other part of it like virgins right but we sally is not particularly virginal nah yeah she's She's like a hippie chick yeah she's (laughs) like a you know pam is obviously the slutty one because she's in a backless halter and short shorts and (laughs) Uh, that their their appearances are definitely there's a there's a a line between them right like Pam wears those tiny red shorts and got the backless halter and she also has her hair done whereas Sally is like wearing kind of a big shirt with bell bottoms and she's got just like mm. long hair so there is something to that of like yeah. feminists being equated with helplessness and death and Sally is like more scrappy and kind of tomboyish if I guess a little, a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah it's I'm like she barely approaches Butch like. yeah. 
but she's wearing pants, Alita. <laughs> so she's, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so she is tied up and she's put in this truck. Her acting is great. Um, the gas station guy is like taunting her by hitting her with the stick and laughing at her, which is always hard for me to watch because I'm like, oh, my God, that's such a terrifying concept. Just like yeah. being kidnapped. Um, yeah. Right. But also, like, of, I've of course eroticized that because I'm a pervert, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's so. I'm like, oh, God, like, yes, but not by the Sawyers. Not by this guy. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> uh, so he drives to the house, to the Sawyer house. He arrives at the same time as the hitchhiker, now revealed to be Leatherface's brother, and the gas station dude is their father. Mm-hmm. Um, the hitcher and his father, um, they have, to put it lightly, a dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> 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 Where the, the father is very abusive. And he hits the hitcher and Leatherface. And um, there's this dysfunctional family relationship going on immediately set up. Uh, The hitchhiker ties Sally to a chair. And when he takes the bag off of her face, he recognizes her and he taunts her. Uh, he says, I thought you were in a hurry. Right. And I'm like, oh, Lord. And there's actually some like humor, honestly, in this first part when we, because we kind of get this like, honestly, like this demented sitcom, like family sitcom feel, just like in the way that I see it. Um, because um, the father um, goes into the kitchen where Leatherface is. In the first instance of drag, where he's wearing um, an old lady mask, it that's what it's like referred to in like interviews with Toby Hooper, um, which it's just kind of like a more wrinkly looking skin mask. Um, it's got some lipstick sin- on it. Yeah, yeah, and then and he's wearing like this old lady like um, kind of like short updo graying hair type situation and he's in the kitchen like it looks like he's maybe like cleaning or doing some like chores and then the dad comes in and he goes you idiot you ruined my door because earlier he (laughs) Earlier, your impressions are so good. I know. I I love doing impressions. Um, (laughs) So so earlier, because Leatherface had chainsawed through the door when he was chasing um, Sally. I think it was like in in the Sally chase, um, like just right before he chainsawed through the door. Um, when he was trying to get her. And so now we have this moment where um, uh, the dad is just like berating this, uh, his son um, for, you know, just sort of like wrecking the house, you know, like, and it seems like this is like a kind of thing that happens a lot in the Mm -hmm. household, like, like Leatherface will like do something like, quote unquote, stupid, and then he'll get berated for it. But there's this, but it's more interesting in this um, moment because he's in this like 
sort of like grandmotherly drag mm-hmm. or maybe just ma- matronly drag mm-hmm. in general. So it's kind of like a wife beating like aesthetic. Right. <laughs> you're no, on. you're that's a really good point. It's like a domestic yeah. violence acting out. Yeah. Of, yeah. And and there's no mother in this picture. There is a grandmother. She's a corpse yeah. and she was in <laughs> She's the, there though. But <laughs> she was in the attic. Yeah. And so um yeah, something I I can't remember how much I talked about this in my paper, but something I was thinking about a lot um with Leatherface and the family dynamic is that like um we know that he's very protective of his family because we know that he was really trying to defend the house and then we see him playing this like matronly like like sort of like house housewifey role in the kitchen and so it seems like um he's trying to sort of insert himself in different like helpful roles in the household or he's trying to like make up for like a lack of like certain dynamics um and it seems like he also is like very much like he's essential to the family and he's kind of used by the family right and it's very it's very easy for people who are disabled in any way to be used and abused by their families or used for labor things like that um and so like yeah this drag in a way like feels like an extension of that totally yeah um it's a very interesting point that i don't think that i think is very unexplored i think a lot of um theorists when they talk about this film they talk about you know just the the way that like in um men women and chainsaws she has that essay her body himself and they talk about people talk about you know the way that uh men project things onto different bodies in horror um but i think which is in its own way interesting. But I also like this angle of um, Leatherface as being the marginalized person in the family that acts that acts out all these different roles, um, which is very true of being the disabled family member, of being the queer family member, uh, being the person that has to fluidly kind of move between roles in the struct yeah. the family structure. So the men torment the bound and gagged Sally. I'd like Leatherface, as you said, is now dressed as a woman um, and he serves dinner. So he's taking on that kind of motherly role. Uh, Leatherface and the hitchhiker bring down one of the desiccated bodies from upstairs, that of their grandpa. Uh, John Dugan plays the grandpa, and apparently, after getting into this old age makeup, he did not ever want to go through the process again. So all the scenes with him had to be filmed in the same session before he could take the makeup off, which took 36 hours. Yeah, this is the like this. The dinner scene is the infamous scene that's like it was pure hell for these people. Yep. Like, 
so, like so many human rights violations. <laughs> like, yeah, it was like a hundred degrees. Um, there, you know, Leatherface. He's got that mask on, but he's got on a suit and necktie, and they're sitting in this room filled with dead animals and rotting food and no air conditioning. And everyone later recalled that the stench of the rotting food and people's body odor was so terrible that some crew members passed out. (laughs) And people were routinely leaving the house to throw up and then come back in. Yeah. Um, And um, yeah. Oh, also, I want to I want to note that there is a costume change um, for Leatherface between the moment in the kitchen and then serving dinner. Okay. Sally, Sally like passes out for a second. And mm-hmm. then when she comes to, they're all seated at the table. And now Leatherface is wearing like a suit and tie. Right. And he, he's also wearing the quote unquote pretty lady mask, yes. which is an interesting, interesting like, choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause, and this mask like <clears throat> has more like, it has like red lips and blush and eyeshadow and eyelashes and um, I can't remember where I read this again, might've been people on a podcast um, were talking about that costume change and they were like, Oh, it's kind of like a sort of like Southern manners thing to get dressed up mm. nicely at the dinner table. And so he's like looking good, like for his family, um, like for this meal. But then also the pretty lady mask is, is like, interesting because it i mean we like we just got a full-on like non-binary moment going on if we yeah. want to like combine a couple of like 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 formal like garment choices with like you know like pretty lady mask. Doing, pretty lady like doing yourself up for dinner it's yeah it's it's interesting um and also um in this moment um We've got Sally like screaming at the horror of what's going on. Um, and as she's screaming and there's more like laughter and, and tormenting, um, we see Leatherface approach her. Um, the hitchhiker like kind of gets up in her face and is like laughing and tormenting her. Um, but Leatherface, I don't really perceive him to be making any noise for a lot of this. Um, and in, you see him like reach out and stroke her hair mm-hmm. in a way that is not that does not feel malicious at all um and it's like quite gentle actually and like that to me like maybe i'm reading into it too much but that is like feels like kind of like a moment of like oh here is this like femme person um at the dinner table like like he hasn't had that kind of like interaction or that kind of role um, or like that kind of perceived like person in a perceived like gendered like female role in his family for like however long. Um, And it was just like an interesting, I, I read it as like a moment of like a little bit more reading into humanity of Mm -hmm. her or at least like a longing like, yeah, and a longing. Yeah, like like feeling like her her long hair and like you know, I I'm not going to like thrust too many trans femme feels on him. Um Oh, that's, that's what not, we do here. It's fine. <laughs> it's not like totally. It's not like totally the the goal of like like talking about transness and horror to be like they are trans, but even though like we can only hope. But like <laughs> but like yeah, no, it 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 
like with all that's going on with um Leatherface's character, it it does read as a sort of longing in that moment. Yeah, longing for embodiment and also longing for maternal figure because he's trapped with these cruel men who abuse yeah. him. And yeah, you know, it's uh, it's mommy uh, longing for for that. Everyone needs a mommy. Everyone needs mommy. <laughs> um. So Edwin Neal also, who plays the hitchhiker, I just thought this was interesting. He said that filming that scene was the worst time of my life and I had been in Vietnam with people trying to kill me. So I guess that shows how bad it was. God, maybe because it was voluntary yeah. <laughs> or because like, like just the sheer absurdity of like, this is supposed to be like a work of art and fun. Like this isn't even wartime. We're doing this like like on like our own volition <laughs> i don't know right like, yeah it's yeah it brings a different cruelty to it uh and leatherface right like we you talked about all the different masks he has he has the killing mask the old lady mask and the pretty lady mask um so grandpa is revealed to be alive when he sucks blood from sally's finger like they cut her finger and he sucks blood from it they actually cut her finger in this scene yeah too. yeah because they because everyone they, yeah. was getting so frustrated with the fake blood not working um i read different things in different places i'm not sure if it was the person who was holding the knife or if it was um the actress who played sally herself who made it happen but like somebody was like fuck it let's just cut the finger yeah so that we can get this scene over with yes um yeah and then yeah they hold it out to the grandpa and like i didn't realize that the grandpa was alive until the moment he started sucking her finger yep like like when i i'm so glad that i didn't read any spoilers before i watched it for the first time like i was genuinely horrified it's so gross yeah yeah and it it like awakens him and like something i thought about too um thinking about like misogyny and horror and the sexualized female body and horror and like sort of like the, the like um that is the voice you have to use when you talk about it i know um, <laughs> sort of the like you know like the penetrating stab like the, mm-hmm. the, the like phallic nature of, finger like, in the mouth the, yeah yeah like that kind of stuff like i even though like we have this moment where like oh he's like sucking her blood like i i don't read sexuality into this really at all like like i read it as nursing yeah that's actually that makes a lot more sense yeah like like they're not interested in her as a sexual object at all no um like definitely not um and i don't read any i'm like there's no heterosexuality i don't read any homoeroticism in this either no <laughs> really um yeah they they seem to be like like that's just that's just not on their radar um it's more of like and, a twisted you know maternal thing yeah like nursing on the finger like bringing him back to bringing grandpa back to life and it, it's also kind of this like creepy lost boys situation and it's like all these men and this 
house and Leatherface has to take on the, the uh, maternal role because they're they're so uh, lost without women and it, you know it's they're they, without the the guidance of um, like a maternal figure it's they just run amok. <laughs> Isn't that true of men? <laughs> You know, like no, just how boys to- are. Oh my God. Um, oh, I did want to um, also mention. Uh, I, it's like right before the grandpa sucking the finger part. Um, when Sally is, um, you know, screaming like, "What do you want? Like, please don't kill me. You can stop this." Um, there's kind of an argument that happens um, between the father and the hitchhiker where the hitchhiker is like, you're just a cook. Yeah. That actually happens right now after, well, it happens after she passes out and then she comes to, and they're all like, the men are like mocking her and imitating her. And, um, Sally begs for her life. And they say to the father, you're just a cook. Me and Leatherface do all the work. And then, and then he, the dad says, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, like huh. it. it's it's yeah. so funny. Oh, it's absurd. Yeah. yeah. And and then he says, um, "There's just some things that have to be done. It doesn't mean you have to like doing it." Well, it's like um, a very farm farmer mentality. Yeah. Like you kill animals because you have to eat them, not because you want to kill them. And it's like they feel that way about her. Like, yeah, they feel and like it kind of makes me think to go back to earlier um, in the van when the hitchhiker was talking about how people are put out of jobs when um, the like air gun became Mm -hmm. the slaughter tool of choice for cows. Um, And like, so clearly, like, there was this. some sort of breakdown of his family um, when they were out of work. And, you know, it's unclear at what point in time they started slaughtering humans, but the way that the father was like, there's just some things that you have to do just makes it seem like they got trapped in this like labor cycle that they can't get out of, even though they're not at the slaughterhouse anymore they have to keep slaughtering yes for some reason yeah yeah it's all they know yeah uh so sally says she's begging for her life and she says i'll do anything you want implying that she would do sexual favors for them in exchange yeah. for her life but they're obviously not interested in that Mm-mm. uh the family of deranged men decide that grandpa the best killer in the old slaughterhouse should kill sally and there's these really great, like, jump cut close ups of Sally's face in agony, just screaming. And her eyes, like, yeah. almost like macro shots of yes. her, like, beautiful green eyes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And like, yeah, it's just like the, the whole film is so richly saturated just in terms of colors. We didn't even really talk about cinematography, but like, it's, it's actually gorgeous. It and is. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. In that, in that shot, like, I feel like it it that one is like a super like influential like cinema cinematographic moment. Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. really effective uh and creates just this 
horrible feeling watching her suffer like that. Grandpa tries to hit Sally with a hammer, but he's too weak. And they try to support his arm. Right. Like they're like helping him do it. They're like, come on, Grandpa. And they're holding <laughs> over her over this basin like you would a, an animal. Yeah. Um, and in the ensuing struggle, Sally breaks three, free. She leaps through another window. Hell yeah. Yep. And it's now daylight. And it's like gorgeous, like be- beautiful golden daylight. and, and Like just, wide Texas sky. Yeah. And you're like, you're like, thank God I'm out of that house. Yeah. Like, yeah. Shit. It's like, such a relief. Yeah. Like the chase is still happening, but you're like, okay, I know this is almost over. I'm feeling good already. Yes. <laughs> and Sally limps valiantly to the road as the brothers chase her, Leatherface with his chainsaw in tow and the hitcher is run over and killed by a truck. Hell yeah. While chasing <laughs> Sally. And Leatherface uh, attacks the truck with a chainsaw when the driver stops to help uh, Sally. And But the driver knocks Leatherface down with a pipe wrench, causing the chainsaw to cut his leg. The driver, the driver is so funny. I he's, know, I love him. Yeah, he's just like, oh shit, like it's, but but also like oddly calm about it. Like yeah, he's not screaming or thing. anything. He's like, oh my god, we just got to get away, and he flees in one direction, and Sally escapes on the back of a passing pickup truck. Uh, as Leatherface maniacally flails his chainsaw in the air in anger and defeat. And there's these last iconic shots of Sally covered in blood and laughing maniacally in relief while Leatherface wields the chainsaw above his head, which apparently Gunnar Hansen improvised specifically to scare toby hooper because they were all were fed up with him as a director yeah and yeah. i'm sure that that laughter that that came from sally was very real yeah. just pure like hysterical relief yes at the fact that this is the last fucking shot of this film yeah. i never have to be on this set again and it's just so haunting just the way the yeah. sun is backlighting her and she's just like <laughs> Like yeah. the, the the absolute relief she you feel it with her. Yeah. So that is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um that was great. I really it's been such a long time since I've talked about that movie. I feel like people take the movie for granted because it's like one of those classics, classics that we just yeah. don't explore that much anymore because so much has been written about it. But um But I haven't read like like the things that I want to read about it, mm. honestly. No, like, same. Yeah, yeah. Like, like for so many of these, um, for like lots of slasher films, I feel like like they've just been written about from the perspective of like, like parents were afraid of their teenagers having sex, so this movie's about like the dangers of sex and drugs and right. blah 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 and like and like yeah the final girl, girl trope and all those things that I'm like there's so many more complexities in these films that like that I don't know that like 
there's just so much more to be written about these things. I'm totally. just happy that we talked about it. No, totally. There needs to be more queer horror theory in general. A lot of horror theory is um, – there's a lot of feminist horror theory, but a lot of it is written by cis straight women. Uh, yeah. which and is- even the, even the like, quote-unquote queer theory that's written by, like, cis gay men mm-hmm. is, like, usually kind of one-sided. And Lacking. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, like what about disability? What about race and class? And exactly. Yeah. There's we didn't so- really... We got into class and, like, labor a little bit, but not into race in this movie because they're... The only person of color in this film is the truck driver at the very end. Yeah. Um, who's just, I mean, I won't try to guess, but like a brown person, a dark skinned person who um, doesn't have any lines and like just sort of has a moment of like, oh shit, I gotta get out of here. Yeah. Um, but yeah. He does live, which I'm happy about. Yeah, I know. Like, I'm just like, I'm glad you were there, dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, like he, I mean, he's like a mini hero because he fucking killed the hitchhiker. Another like, fat person. Yeah. 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 That too. And like, um, but yeah, other than that, like this, this was um, just like a fully white cast. So yeah. And I mean, we can. Well, even when a film is white, right, it's still about race. So this is yeah, very course. much a um, white working class narrative of yeah. the kind of people that would be living in this area and the kind of white working class people that would be living in this area and would feel disenfranchised by a system and turn to eating people, which, I mean, <laughs> if we want to really get deep with it, is um, kind of the project of rural conservatism, of mm-hmm. feeling of white rural conservatism, of feeling disenfranchised by a system and instead of becoming uh, radicalized, becoming- And fighting against the and system. And fighting against the system, and- eating people, eating your own. Yeah. Right. So in that way, that's actually I don't know how intentional that was on the part of Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel, but quite poignant in that way. And there's a lot implicitly to do with class and race in this film. And I'm glad that you brought that up so that we could kind of bookend this episode with that discussion um of course we could talk about this for another two hours Uh, i know this has been a long chat yeah it has and it's been it's been really great so thank you so much for doing this with me um of course this is a dream come true absolutely you have to come back because this discussion was so was so good i would love to have you on again yay um where, if you want, where can people find you on social media? <clears throat> you can find me and my art, which I didn't really describe earlier, but it has to do with um, uh, intimacy between bodies and surfaces involving a lot of gross, squishy things and a lot of things that look like pimples and a lot of things that have to do with my embody- embodiment as a transsexual person and there's just there's a lot of like content warning body horror and like tiny little holes filled with seeds like that's, that's basically <laughs> basically my work I've, I've like so I'm intrigued over, like I, I need like an elevator pitch again for like who I am and what I do because like I'm just like 
brain dead right now in terms of how to talk about my work. But anyway, you can find me on Instagram at ailita.parizek, but I'm not going to bother spelling it because you can just write it in the description. I will. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll put it in the show notes. And I was I saw some of your work yesterday and I'm really into it. It's like trans Cronenberg. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love Cronenberg. Yeah. Would love to. Talk we should about do it. We should do a Cronenberg for sure. I just oh, yes. I did the brood recently. I that I loved it. I was so happy you talked about it. That's also one of my favorites. Ugh, love, but, love it. But yeah, would love to talk about Cronenberg because his work's hella trans. He's putting vaginas on people yes. like half the time. Yeah, he's absolutely. Tearing people new assholes. Yeah, like literally. <laughs> and that's what we're all about here, at girls. Guts and <laughs> you know where to find me, right? Twitter, Instagram, <laughs> girls guts and giallo, uh, Patreon.com/slash girls guts giallo, and I will see you all next time. Bye. Inside the small rural Texas community of Newt early this morning. Officers there discovered what appeared to be a grisly work of art, the remains of a badly decomposed body wired to a large monument. A second body was found in a ditch near the perimeter of the cemetery. Subsequent investigation has revealed at least a dozen empty crypts, and it's feared more will turn up as the probe continues. Deputies report that in some instances, only parts of a corpse had been removed. The head, or in some cases, the extremities removed, the remainder of the corpse left intact. Evidence indicates the robberies have occurred over a period of time. Sheriff Jesus Maldonado refused to give details in the ghoulish case and said only that he did have strong evidence linking the crime to elements outside the state. Area residents have reportedly converged on the cemetery, fearing the remains of relatives have been removed. No suspects are in custody as the investigation at the scene continues. Thank you.